Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. Uh, today is week four in our eight-week series focusing on unity and world religions the commonalities and the variations between the unity truth principles and the beliefs of the major religions. And today I have the good fortune to welcome to my show a rising star in the field of Islamic theology and civil rights, Imam Omar Suleiman. He's an American Muslim scholar, a leader, writer, and public speaker. He's the founder and president of Yakim Institute for Islamic Research, a think tank. He's a professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and a co-anchor emeritus of uh, the Follow Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square, a multi-faith coalition of clergy for peace and justice. A native of New Orleans, he received national recognition for his social justice efforts in relation to Hurricane Katrina. He starred in the award-winning Inspiration series. He frequently visits Syria uh, just to visit the refugee camps. Has received a threat from ISIS because he's considered to be an apostate Western imam and is recognized on CNN as one of the 25 most American change makers active in our world today. The list can go on, and I can keep going. It's a long list of accomplishments for a young man. But so it's a joy to welcome Omar Suleiman to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, there's so much misinformation about Islam and the Muslim tradition in the West. And, of course, you're all too familiar with that. Um, Some of it's fueled by extremism, some by selective quotations from the Quran, because I know there's certain people who can quote the Quran and make it seem like, you know, a text of of hate and, and war, just as you can take the Bible and do the same thing with that. So how do you approach that? You know, how, how do we get through that barrier that people have about about Islam right now? Well, I think there are multiple layers of that. One of them is just challenging um, the evidences that are used to put Muslims on trial and to put Islam on trial. Um, you know, so if you were to look at the terrorism that exists in the world today, not just that's here in the United States, that often is disproportionately pinned on Muslims as opposed to, you know, the the various other causes uh, that terror is wielded in the name of. Um, Objectively speaking, Muslims do not account for 
any disproportionate amount of terror in the world. So it's not just an overrepresentation, which University of Alabama and Georgia University actually published a study that showed that Muslims that commit acts of terror are covered by the media uh, 357% more than uh, violent extremists from any other uh, background or in the name of any other cause. So there's a disproportionate focus and misrepresentation that's very intentional. But it's also just objectively untrue that Islam accounts for more violence in the world than anyone else or any other religion. And you could point to the numerous mass shootings. Uh, you know, if, if you ask someone to cite the name of the uh, the, the mass shooting uh, or, or the, the man who carried out the mass shooting in Las Vegas, uh, which was the worst in history, in American history, uh, very few people would be able to identify that image or that name. Imagine if that was a Muslim, right? And there are so many other examples of that. So in your you know, up to 400 mass shootings in America on an annual basis. Uh, about one or two of them typically would be committed by a Muslim, and it usually has nothing to do with their religious background whatsoever. But somehow people make those associations. So we challenge the associations, challenge the evidence that's used to derive those associations. And then I think we just need to be a part of ushering in a better way forward and uh, let our actions speak louder than our words. I don't need to prove my love to society because of some bigots and because of the misrepresentations of my religion. I'm not doing this out of a sense of PR, but instead I do it out of an act of mandate from my faith. And when Muslims um, are rising to the front lines right now, disproportionately in the medical profession, for example, (laughs) Muslims make up up to 10% of of doctors in the United States. When Muslims are at the front lines of charity, and efforts of charity and uh, and contributing to society, uh, we would hope that that more um, open-minded Americans would be able to see through the smoke screens that are created by bigots online and by these misrepresentations of our faith and our faith community. Right, and I don't want to belabor the point because we want to talk about the commonalities between you know the Muslim tradition and and uh, the unity teachings. This this is a unity. Um, based program we're, we're talking about here but you know help me with one thing and that is i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the, the talking about infidels must be killed and they must be converted and and, and this this sort of thing um and the jihad you know and I, I understand that jihad can be an interior jihad right the fight with one's lesser nature if you like but but there's this this idea that clings to a lot of people that um Muslims want to convert them, and if they can't convert them, you know, they, the Allah told them to to kill to kill the infidels. So, you know, how do we? What's that about? Is that actually in the in the Quran? <laughs> so, if you were to again, I say statistics, um, and what I'm about to say is not a critique of the Bible. It's a critique of the way that we read. Um, if you took the verses in the Quran according to studies, only 2.3 percent of them have any violent implications, whereas um, over 5% of biblical scripture has violent implications. This was according to a study that was done uh, recently in terms of the statistics of it. If you were to quote, misquote things from the Bible, um, especially from the Old Testament, you could derive all sorts of things. The reality is that there's nothing in the Quran or the prophetic tradition that allows for vigilantism, that allows for violence against innocent people, that allows for offensive transgressions. Uh, there's a concept of jihad, which is which means a righteous struggle. That righteous struggle has an interior 
uh, manifestation and exterior manifestation. The interior manifestation is that you struggle against your lower self and you struggle against your desires for the sake of right. the good. The exterior uh, uh, understanding of jihad is to fight a just war. And so it was used, uh, you know, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, just like all the other prophets, he was persecuted. Um, and, you know, his he was not popular with state authorities and uh, had to fight off persecution. And so jihad was certainly there in an, off, in, in, uh, an exterior, an outward manifestation, but not in an offensive um, uh, violent uh, manifestation that would target innocent civilians that uh, attack people for not attacking them. And so that, I think it's, it's you know, and the idea of killing the infidels, uh, it's, the, the Quran says there's no compulsion in religion. The, the verse that is used, and kill them wherever you find them, literally the entire verse, if you were to take it, is talking about fighting back those that had chased Muslims from Mecca to Medina. And the Muslims were hesitant after 13 years of not fighting back. They were hesitant to pick up their swords against those that had run them out of their homes and, and killed their family members. And God gives them the permission to fight. And it actually says in the Quran, fighting has been uh, allowed for you, even though it is detested to you. And so it was mm -hmm. not something that they wanted to do. It was uh, something that was necessary. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would encourage people to look deeper and to consider the way that these things are intentionally decontextualized, and that if those same tactics were used against uh, Christianity and Judaism, then uh, it would be quite detrimental, and, and you know it would it would just be um, unhelpful and unfair. Right. Yes. Thank you for that, because I think it's an important point, and I do try and read my Bible every day, you know. But sometimes I'll open at random to something in the Old Testament, and God is destroying everybody, or you know, there's abominations here and abominations there. I, I, I get tired of it. I quickly turn to the New Testament for a little hope, you know, because Jesus Jesus seems to provide a little a little more sophisticated theology. But uh, you know, you know, you're absolutely right, uh, and. Um, we had somebody on the show the other day that said, you know, unfortunately, you can prove anything from a holy book, you know, if you, if you read it selectively. And this is the, the, the downside, isn't it, of selective reading is that, yeah. uh, you know, you can twist yourself all out of shape. So let's move to um, commonalities between unity and and uh, Islam. You know, in, in unity, we talk about the five prints, the great unity, truth, truth principles. First one being um, that there's one presence and one power, you know, God the good. So there's this unitive idea that there is only one God throughout the whole universe. Um, so let's talk about the nature of God in, in the Islamic tradition, which I think is similar, isn't it? That God, God is the absolute um, and, and transcendent presence, correct? Correct. There's, there's one, one God, omnipotent um, and undivided and... Um, Islam is definitely about a very uh, strong idea of monotheism and upholding monotheism in all of its forms and without any ambiguity or associations. So in, in unity, we might say, yes, God is transcendent, but God is also imminent, you know, within everything as well. Um, from my reading of Islam, it seems like the, the, the God is, you know, beyond, right? The, the God creates and sustains correct. the world, but God is not necessarily within it. Is that, is that correct? Correct. So God is with us and that he hears and he knows everything and that he is close to us when we supplicate him. But uh, uh, certainly, you know, the, the Quran states um, there's nothing like him 
and um, he is beyond. I think that is the best way to describe it, beyond his creation, in that he is not distant from them in supplication or in knowledge, but he is uh, exalted above the creation, in that he doesn't he, he doesn't reside within it, um, uh, you know, according to the Quran. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that would that would be a slight difference, I think, because we have a more panentheistic idea, you know, God, God beyond, yes, transcendent, but also in, in some, you know, conundrum kind of paradoxical kind of way w- within it, you know, without being um, changed by it, but 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 deeply w- within it at the same time. So, okay, so our second principle, which is that, you know, if, if God is the one presence, you know, everywhere present, um, then we are of God. You know, the human beings uh, have a spark of divinity with, within them. So talk about the nature of, of humankind when it comes to uh, Islamic tradition. Yeah, so I think that where we might be, um, you know, seeing a little bit of a distinction here, and, and it's, it's not, to, not to belittle it, it's not a small distinction because you're talking about theology and creed, obviously, but... Uh, God is acquainted, um, fully acquainted, so knowledgeable of everything that happens within his creation. Not a leaf falls from a tree without his permission. He is closer to you than your jugular vein. When you call upon him, he answers you right away. Uh, those are those are themes that are, that are deeply embedded in the Qur'an. Um, but his being exalted above the creation does not uh, represent a sense of distance. Um, or nor does it represent a sense of ignorance of the creation or uh, anything of that sort. So what that means for us as human beings, uh, you know, we are we're, we're, we are of God's creation, and God has honored uh, His creation. Uh, there is a beautiful statement in the Quran that we have uh, dignified and honored the child of Adam, and so all of us are honored and dignified and sanctified in the sight of God. And to violate God's creation, that which he has sanctified, is instead of is indeed a violation of God himself. And so uh, theological humanitarianism in that sense would be that when I neglect my fellow human being, I don't just neglect my fellow human being, but I'm neglectful of God because God is the one who assigned that person's dignity and rights to them. And so God does not um, reside within us, but God has certainly sanctified us. And so... Uh, in God's sanctifying of us, uh, to violate us or to violate what God has sanctified is a violation of God himself. And so the, the consequences of that in, in, in terms of how we treat one another, how we treat our fellow man, uh, are still there. And, and I would say that the same is true. Theologically, supplication Islam is a very intimate understanding of the concept of supplication. Uh, you call upon God. Um, you know, we have our five daily prayers, which are the, which are ritualistic and, and uh, highly governed by ritual and technicality. But then you have supplications that are to be done throughout the day. And while you have prophetic supplications, the supplications of of Job, peace be upon him, of Jonah, peace be upon him, of Jesus, peace be upon him, of Muhammad, peace be upon him, of all the prophets, they springboard us uh, into making our own supplications, which can be in a, any language, can be in any format, and they're meant to be deeply personal. And so you are calling upon God, and God is listening to you, and you don't have to go to an imam. You don't have to go to uh, anyone to elevate your supplication. The person that's cleaning the mosque and the person that's leading the prayer in the mosque have the exact same access to God. And so distance is not suggested in, in, uh, in the uh, exalting of God above his creation. Right. Yeah, I, li- I like that. It's a, 
it's a subtle difference from you know the approach we might take, but it's um, it's also a very noble one, isn't it? It's the idea of that intimacy um, is very attractive, I think, you know, and um, and it, it's it speaks to our care for each other as well because there's an egalitarian aspect to that, and and we're all in this together, so to speak, and uh, you know um, that's that's a beautiful concept. So. Uh, some people say, oh, Islam is sort of life-denying. You know, the goal is to get to paradise, right? And, um, and, and so this is a temporary stage, a, a, a bridge over to, to, to the final goal. Uh, other religions may have the goal of awakening or enlightenment or freedom or whatever. Um, is, is there a similar con- concept in, in uh, Islam or is, is really the goal is to lead a good life, and then, and then reap the rewards afterwards, is it? So it's, it's multi-layered, right? So there are three levels in Islam in terms of faith. Um, there is, uh, uh, or, or, or actually they can be simplified into two. There is what's known as taqwa. Uh, taqwa means God consciousness, and, and God consciousness, and sometimes taqwa is translated into fear of God. So you act out of a sense of fear of God. Now, we struggle with that word because when you fear something, you run away from it. When you fear God, you run to him. And the relationship that we have with God is one of awe and uh, a fear of losing out on his love and losing out on his reward by disqualifying ourselves through some sort of uh, a transgression or oppression, be it against ourselves or others. So taqwa is when you uh, observe the sight of God upon you in a way that would cause you to abstain from prohibitions, uh, in a way that would cause you to abstain from sin. And so you, you're observant of the sight of God upon you, right? And so what, what God gives you in terms of obligations, the do's and the don'ts, you do because you do and you don't because you, you, you're uh, cognizant of the sight of God upon you. The next level of that is called ihsan, which is excellence. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, defined that as saying that you worship God as if you can see him. And if you can't see him, then you know that he sees you. And what that really refers to is not just being uh, aware of the sight of God upon you, but honoring the sight of God upon you. And so what that activates is a sense of going above and beyond, doing when other people don't see you extra good deeds, uh, putting an extra quality in the good that you do for people, because you also know that God is watching you. And so you rise above the standards that other people have in terms of their charity and their good works in society. And so there's this concept of, of there, there are different motives, right? There's the motive, uh, you know, of obviously in, in Islam, we, we do believe in punishment and reward, so that exists. Um, the love that's inside of us, the good qualities that God has put inside of us, when we cultivate those good qualities, that is, in fact, honoring God. In Islam, uh, God has 99 names. He's only one God, but he has 99 names. And the greatest way to honor those 99 names, starting with the most, the, the most uh, uh, compassionate, the most merciful, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful, which starts every chapter of the Qur'an. Uh, and we are to start with, in the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful with everything that we do. The way you honor those 99 names uh, beyond uh, calling upon God with those names and becoming acquainted with God through those names and attributes is that if there is a human manifestation of, uh, of one of those uh, names, uh, of course, we can show mercy, but we can never be the most merciful. And our human mercy would not be like God's mercy. But the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, 
that he who does not show mercy will not receive mercy. Uh, be merciful to those that are on earth, and the one in the heavens will be merciful to you. And so when we talk about God being the most generous, whereas, you know, the way we honor the most generous is first and foremost through our activating of our generosity and, uh, and, and being as much as we can of those qualities when that's possible to us. And so the, the reward of paradise is certainly there. The fear of punishment is certainly there. Um, there are do's and don'ts and obligations and prohibitions. But the goal is to reach a point where you are acting out of a sense of ihsan, which, which is excellence, uh, honoring the sight of God upon you, which means further honoring those that God has assigned rights to. Yes. Mm, very fascinating. Thank you for exculpating that because it's uh, a very subtle approach. And I, I think, I think this, is, this is so needed for, for folks who are not um, you know, acquainted with the subtleties of, of the tradition to know that there is this, this level of um, this fineness, this, this nobility that's involved with it, which is uh, very encouraging, very uplifting. So, so thank you for that. Um, and before we go to the break, uh, the third uh, principle that we have is basically the law of mind action, which is the formative power of, of, our, of our minds, our consciousness. You know, basically, um, whatever we are consistently thinking and feeling is going to be made manifest. So I'm assuming that that's a kind of a universal law. It's, you sow what you reap, right? So you, we would see that in, in the tradition as well, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. You reap what you Um uh, the way that it's understood in the Quran is that punishment would only be in, you know, an exact compensation, but reward will always be in greater compensation from God. And so uh, a, a sin is um, only equated with one consequence, whereas a good deed has a minimum of 10 uh, rewards from God, up to 700, up to many more. And if a person repents from a sin, then the sin is as if it has never been committed, whereas if a person intends a good deed, and doesn't do it, then the good deed is written as if he fully completed it. So compensation and you reap what you sow is certainly there, both in, in yeah. terms of our yeah. spiritual practices as the, well as There's an old phrase, I don't know if it comes from Sufism, but, you know, the, the phrases which I've always liked is, you know, we make one step towards God and God makes a hundred steps towards us. You know, the, yeah. the, there's, a, there's a generosity in, in God that is beyond our imagining, right? It's actually a, a statement of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He said that uh, God ah, lovely. That yeah. if you, if you, if if he comes to me walking, I go to him running. So mm -hmm. if you take one step towards God, he takes a hundred yeah. towards you. So you go yeah. to him walking, he goes to you running. I love that, folks. We're with um, Imam Omar Suleiman, and we're talking about Islam. And it's uh, some of the commonalities it has with unity. And not just that, some of the fascinating elements that there is within this noble tradition and some of the misunderstandings, really, that unfortunately um, cloud uh, the true understanding of what, uh, what Islam is about. So it's great, it's great to get some clarification. We're going to take a break now, listen to these um, messages from unity. But when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about prayer and uh, the call to action, how do we live our faith, and also maybe a little bit about the mystical side of um, Islam, because we hear a lot about the fundamentalist side, so let's talk about more of the, uh, the, 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 the Sufi side of things. Um, all right, let's take a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. So welcome back to today's show. This is week four in our series of Unity in World Religions. And today I'm with Imam Omar Suleiman. We're talking about unity in Islam. And I'm thoroughly enjoying this series because it's right up my street. Our show is called World Spirituality. Been a student of world religions since um, college days, really. And, and so it's fascinating to talk with folks who know what they're talking about and, and can bring a, a, a depth of understanding. So this is definitely the, what's happening today. And so we're, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, prayer and, and how we put our prayers into action in our lives, because that's important, I know, in, in the Islamic tradition. But also a little bit about uh, how uh, Sufism fits in. Before we get to that, um, a question I've always wanted to ask is that there's the Quran, yes? And, and then there's, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Hadith, which, which is a collection of sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. Is, is that, is that, am I right about that? Correct. So, so there's the Quran, and then when you say the Quran and the Sunnah, so uh, the Sunnah, which is S-U-N-N-A-H, uh, the Sunnah would include the Hadith um, in terms of the statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and also his actions and his directives. So it's, um, it's you know, Hadith is more specific than Sunnah because it's uh, his sayings, whereas Sunnah includes Hadith, it's his actions, his sayings, and sort of the collection of the prophetic tradition. So, you know, in, say, Hinduism, for instance, there's there's certain uh, scriptures that are considered to be the direct voice of God and others are sort of the, the interpretation of sages, and there's a sort of a differentiation. One is higher than the other. So is the is the Quran and the Hadith, would they be considered uh, equally authoritative? So they're equally authoritative in terms of legislation not equally authoritative in terms of sanctity. Uh, and, and I'll kind of explain that a bit. So the Qur'an is the literal word of God. Uh, and, 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 so it's God speaking to mankind. Um, the sunnah, the authentic, when I say authentic, it's because there's an exhaustive process in terms of, um, you know, it's a science, authenticating the reports from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The sunnah is um, inspired by God and in that the Prophet does not act out of his own desire, but he acts out of divine revelation, divine directive. Uh, but it's not the exact word of God. The hadiths are not the word of God. So what that means is that from a legislative perspective in Islam, uh, both of them have equal weight in that uh, a saying of God and an authentic saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which is inspired by God, uh, holds equal weight to us. But in terms of honor and sanctity, uh, certainly the Qur'an being the word of God himself um, holds its, its distinct place. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's similar to um, scriptures in in uh, the Hindu tradition as well. Interesting. So obviously, you mentioned prayer. You know, we have these ritualistic prayers five five times a day, right? Um, prayer is, and I'm, I asked this of the um, the the, uh, the Judaic scholar last week. You know, within unity, we we talk a lot about affirmative prayer because we'd rather align with rather than beseech God. Um, and he said, oh, no, in the in the Judaic tradition, we love to beg. 
and it was kind of funny. <laughs> but so is uh, you know where where are you with that? Is it is it? You, we mentioned supplication, which is a sort of a a gentle form of begging, isn't it? Um, what yeah, what are we so doing actually, when we're in prayer? Uh, to, to, so to humble yourself to God is a means of honoring yourself, and so to lower yourself in prayer is a means of actually having it accepted and having it elevated. Now, lowering yourself in prayer does not mean disgracing yourself, um, belittling yourself. It means presenting your vulnerability and your absolute dependence and reliance upon God. And so whether, you know, again, and and I think that the Jewish legal tradition and the the Muslim legal tradition share so much in common. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so when it comes to supplication, you know, the God calling upon the God of Abraham, presenting yourself the way that Job presents himself to God, the way that Zechariah, Zacharias, uh, presents himself to God, the way that, you know, prophets present themselves in complete vulnerability um, and reliance, that I am in need of you. Um, you know, so there, there's a, a deep prayer of Moses, peace be upon him, in, in the Quran, um, that, that I am in need of, that, that I am completely in need of anything, any of your blessings that you would descend upon me. Uh, the prayer that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, told us uh, is the prayer that would uh, cause any prayer to be accepted is the prayer of Jonah uh, in, in Arabic Yunus, peace be upon him, uh, which is the prayer when he when he says La ilaha la anta subhanaka inni kuntu There is no God but you. How perfect are you? Verily, I was from the wrongdoers, and so it's an affirmation of the oneness of God. La ilaha la anta subhanaka uh, uh, subhanaka, which is how perfect are you? Uh, because we started off with this discussion about beyond versus within. Uh, Sibah in the Arabic language is a swimmer on top of water. So to say that you are exalted above your creation. So uh, accepting full um, or, or affirming the full glory of God. And then inni quintum in the and I was from the wrongdoers. It was I, I accept fault for what I've done. And so uh, begging, showing dependence uh, upon God is a means of honoring uh, uh, oneself and not a means of disgracing oneself and a means of drawing closer to him because God is always both capable and willing. Uh, most people, when you ask of them, they are either only capable or only willing to help you. Uh, but God is always both capable and willing. And so when you're calling upon him, you call upon him with full faith, um, both in his, his abilities and full faith in his willingness. However, he may answer your supplication in a way that your wisdom would not be able to um, capture. And that's part of the submission to God, is submitting yourself, not just in prayer, but in the way that the prayer will be answered. Right, very nice. I think there's a Sufi saying that says, uh, what we seek um, cannot be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. And it, it sort of talks about that, the idea that, you know, you have to make the effort, but really you do, you're not the one that does it. You know, there's, there's, a, there's some greater force that's active here. So the humble attitude is, is supremely important. I think that's important in unity because sometimes we, we act like we have God in our pocket, you know, because we have these principles and we feel like we, we're in control now. I'm, I'm activating God. Well, nobody does that, right? That's the sort of a hubris <laughs> if, we're doing, if we try and set ourselves up like that. Um, there were right. some of the Sufis did, right? There were, there were some in the Sufi tradition who said, you know, I am God, and, and uh, they were stoned to death or whatever. Um, so is, is regular uh, 
Muslim tradition and Sufi tradition, do they stand apart slightly? Is, is, is Sufism <laughs> suspect in some way? I mean, so, how, how do you approach that? <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, I'm not laughing at the stoning to death. I'm, I'm la- you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's certainly that most, you know, there is a great tolerance, I think, in, in Islamic history for, for divergent viewpoints in some of these things. But obviously, um, some of them definitely exceed uh, the bounds of what was uh, both within the legalistic tradition, but also what was, you know, how, how communities reacted to it, right? But you'll find that Sufism is a broad tradition. Right. And, and it is so broad that there is a Sufism that is highly governed by the legal and the technical, meaning to say that it is one that focuses um, heavily on spiritual refinement and on the practices that can be derived from the tradition that can spiritually refine, um, but still abiding by the dictates of creed and the, uh, you know, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, sort of the tradition, right? So that is a Sufism that exists. And then, you know, it, it, it obviously uh, spans, uh, you know, to a point where you have uh, the whirling dervishes, right? You have Right. Uh, you know, who I believe you're probably referring to, Al Halak, um, you know, a famous uh, exactly. yeah. scholar who said, I am God. Uh, there's nothing within this cloak except for God. Uh, and then you have the most famous, uh, the most prominent Sufi, if you will, um, <laughs> at least in the Islamic tradition, would be Al Ghazali. And Al Ghazali is, is within the scope of Orthodox Islam, right? He doesn't exceed Orthodox Islam in the boundary. So. Uh, he's quoted frequently. Uh, Rumi, uh, Rumi obviously has been um, uh, highly, you know, um, turned into a symbol. But I mean, at the end of the day, these were Islamic scholars that, uh, you know, for the most part, really did uh, consider themselves within the tradition and and uh, were traditionalistic. So again, it spans. So Al Ghazali, as I said, I mean, Al Ghazali, who you know, experimented with different types of Sufism throughout his life. But, um, you know, overall, Imam al-Ghazali is, is recognized as, as, a, as a, a great figure uh, by traditional Muslims. Um, so I think it's, it's just about uh, what leeway does the mysticism have, if that makes sense, right? How far can it go? And what are the, are there boundaries? Or is it unbounded because of the very nature of uh, you know, of, of mysticism, right, is that it is uh, exploring the unbounded, right? So <laughs> I think it's, it's, a, it's a debate, obviously, that has existed throughout centuries. And I would certainly say that there's a Sufism that is uh, traditional and orthodox, and there's a Sufism that exceeds uh, the tradition and orthodoxy. Right, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm very fond of a number of, uh, you know, Sufi teachers that, um, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Is it Al Ghazali, um, the, right. the so broke Al-Ghazali foundation? Is, is, yes, yes. So he's and then the other one I love Al-Ghazali is, uh, is most, yeah. Ibn Ibn Arabi. I think his name is. Yeah, so Ibn Arabi would would is different from Al Ghazali, and that Al Ghazali is upheld within the Sunni mainstream schools, right? right. So Ibn Arabi is, is looked at as, as one who exceeded, but still within the, you know, in Sufism, in the corpus of Sufism, you know, Al-Ghazali and, and Ibn Arabi are, are both uh, upheld as, as significant figures. Right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. 
Let's shift to the, um, the putting it into action. The five pillars of Islam, you know, refer to the various uh, what the, the main things that you have to do throughout your life, right? Um, and one of them is giving of alms, right? But that doesn't mean that that's the only way you give. I, mean, I think that that is what's required of you. That's a sort of a minimum, right? That you give alms, but you're also encouraged to to give in other ways. So let's let's talk about that. Maybe we should just quickly go over the five pillars to the. Uh, the, sure, the, the first sure. pillar is prayer, right? Um, correct. Well, first, first pillar, pillar is, is, is there's one presence and one power. There's there's only God, right? So the first pillar is actually the test. Sorry, I should I should uh, <laughs> clarify. So the first pillar is, is testify is the testimony of faith, which is I, I bear witness that there's only one God, words right. of worship and unconditional obedience, and that Muhammad is his messenger. And then the first prayer, the the, the first pillar after that, which is sort of the, the pillar. Uh, in terms of practical pillar, the daily pillar is the prayer, um, which is the five daily prayers, um, the obligatory five daily prayers, which are certainly not the only prayers that we do, but um, five prayers that are um, based throughout the day uh, so that a person connects to God um, in the way that the Prophet, peace be upon him, connected to God at those five times. And then there are all sorts of recommended prayers around those prayers and between those prayers. And then the third pillar is... Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess I can go through them in that sense. So the, so the first pillar is the testimony. The second pillar is the prayer. The third pillar is the almsgiving. And zakat is a mandatory charity of 2.5% on your retained earnings for those that meet the threshold, meaning those that aren't needy themselves. Right. Um, but that 2.5% is the bare minimum. So there's zakat, which is the obligatory charity, and then there's sadaqah which is all forms of charity. And uh, sadaqa, both in terms of its uh, financial manifestation as well as its uh, uh, encompassing um, non-financial forms of charity, uh, are, are highly elaborated on. So sadaqa is encouraged always towards all good causes, but then the Prophet, peace be upon him, said that even a smile in the face of your brother is a charity. To assist someone on the road is a charity. Uh, to carry someone's groceries is a charity. Um, to, to serve uh, what is left of, in your cup uh, to your neighbor as a charity. So anyway, charity is, is, is an expansive uh, concept in Islam, but zakat is the 2.5%, which is mandatory on those that are able. And then you have the, uh, the fasting, which we are engaging in right now. Uh, fasting is, a, is an act that God mentions in the Quran, was prescribed on those that came before us as well, so that they may gain piety and God consciousness. And so when you deprive yourself of the physical blessings of God that are usually readily available to you, you do two things. Number one, you gain a greater appreciation for those blessings from God, hence a greater appreciation of God himself. Number two, a greater empathy for those that don't have those blessings ordinarily uh, readily available to them the way that you do. And so you physically deprive yourself to spiritually uh, fill yourself and to uh, also become activated um, in, in a social way also. And uh, in Ramadan, which is the month of fasting, which we are in right now, where we fast from just before sunrise up to sunset, in Ramadan, we, um, you know, we, we also fill ourselves with the recitation of the Quran. So we recite the holy book, um, 
you know, uh, throughout the day and throughout the night in prayer, and then we engage in various acts of charity. And if a person is unable to fast, then they should feed a poor person every day for the day that they're not able to fast. That's for those that are permanently unable, and for those that are temporarily unable, they, they make up their fast later on when they're able to. And then finally, we have the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage, uh, which is a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, where Abraham, uh, peace be upon him, and Ishmael, peace be upon him, uh, raised the house, the foundation, the Kaaba. And uh, we engage in those acts um, uh, of the pilgrimage that Abraham engaged in uh, as a means of stripping ourselves bare of all of the things that distance us from God and distance us from each other. And so you go to uh, you go to the place that Abraham raised as a place of worship of God, and you wear only two white garments, uh, which are the garments that were also buried in, so that the king and the beggar could not be distinguished from one another. And in the recognition of the oneness of God comes the recognition of the oneness of humanity. And that's why I tell people that I think one of the, the greatest books spiritual books to read is, is the autobiography of Malcolm X, where he talks about his Hajj pilgrimage and what it did for him and completely reshaping his worldview, because in connecting to the oneness of God uh, through the Hajj pilgrimage, he really deeply understood the oneness of humanity in a way that transformed both his spiritual life and his activist life. So he's a, a mentor for you, isn't he? I think I was reading that in your, in your bio or whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Malcolm is um, probably uh, the most, you know, it's between him and Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, of course, who uh, uh, was a student of Malcolm X and converted to Islam through Malcolm X. Um, I think most consequential figures of, of Islam in America, um, the two of them, um, and the evolution of Malcolm, um, the fact that Malcolm was a great truth speaker, but also a great truth seeker. And the fact that he wasn't just willing to challenge racism in society with, with such boldness, but he was also willing to challenge himself to grow. And when he came into contact with the truth, um, he wasn't afraid to take the risks that were necessary in order for him to grow with that truth. There's a beautiful sincerity of Malcolm and, and an inspiration uh, in his courage and his sincerity also. His courage for his activism, his sincerity and his spiritual life, and those two obviously uh, both intertwine um, in, in, in those two, in those two uh, domains uh, often in, in his life. So, you know, he obviously was motivated to action, and, and some of it was different later in his life, as you said, than it was earlier on. Um, but we're all called to act, right, to, to be c caring for each other. I love the, the, the leveling idea. You know, we're all equal in the, under the eyes of God, right? There, there's, there's no hierarchies here, and we, which is a very radical statement in, in cultures that are very uh, defined by class or by political power or by um, systems of monetary domination. And unfortunately, we find ourselves in a society where you know there's there's huge amounts of money accumulated by by the few, right? And we seem to be ruled by an oligarchy, if, if in, in a sense. Um, so we've got a long way to go in, in modern America, you know. Even though we we pride ourselves, right, being on the land of the free, um, doesn't always seem that that way. And um, so, how do we approach that? I know you're an activist and uh, do a lot of work in that 
I mentioned a few things at the beginning of the show, but what, what you know, what's how do we do that without becoming bitter? I think that's an important question. So I think that, um, and it's a great question, one that I often struggle with. Our activism has to be from a place of love um, and a, a place of desiring peace. And so, while justice is our uh, our path, peace has to be our destination. And so, when we act, we act out of a place of love. Uh, I, I believe in a sense of righteous anger, of of, of loving anger. Um, when I see someone oppressed, I should be angry, but my anger should not come from a place of vengeance but from a place of wanting justice out of my love for the person that was wronged and oppressed uh, we have to dig deeper um, in ourselves and we have to be clear on the goals in order to properly craft the means I think that sometimes um, you know in in a uh, in an effort or in a genuine desire to be peaceful we turn a blind eye to injustices because we want to pretend that they don't exist and we feel like we can um, you know, if, if if we keep talking about lofty ideals, then uh, those injustices will somehow disappear. But I think the reality is, is that if you take those lofty ideals, you maintain the standards. But then you have to really, uh, as Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, uh, pray with your feet. Um, you've got to get, you've got to hear people's pain, and those that are at the historic, uh, you know, uh, or, or that are his, that are victims of historic systemic injustices. We have to right those injustices uh, in the name of wanting love and peace and equality. And so sometimes we use uh, terms like peace to shut down the work of justice, whereas they're really not in contradiction with one another. So we have to work. We've got to challenge ourselves. We've got to complicate our worldviews a bit, um, put ourselves in touch with um with 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 people's sufferings who we may not have ever encountered any of what they encounter but we we learn to challenge our worldviews and learn to uh to listen uh to those that are hurting and in listening to those that are hurting then we not only become more aware of the courses of action that we can take to systemically uh, rectify uh, what is causing them to hurt, but we also become more aware of perhaps how our complacency and our passiveness has added to their hurt. Um, yes. The silence of the friend, the silence of the one that should be helping, the silence of the privileged causes great pain. And so uh, we also become, I think, more aware of the consequences of our own negligence at times. Well, you know, I did a couple of days training in inclusivity and diversity as part of a board that I'm on, and I've always considered myself fairly open-minded, you know, liberal, etc. But I was shocked at, uh, you know, the attitudes that I take for granted as as a as a white male, basically. You know, the, it, there's there's so much privilege in, instilled in in just being that a white male, and it's it's silent within me. You know, I don't even realize it's there until. I was woken up by um, some of the things that were discussed, you know, during that um, that seminar. So it was it's very imp- it, it, it was eye opening. So yeah, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And sometimes, you know, we don't do something because we don't know, not not that we don't know how to do it. You know, we're not we're not open. We're not educated. I know the the common phrase these days is woke, right? But it's, um, that's become a little bit passe already. But 
Um, but it is the idea of waking up to, you know, something that's right underneath your nose. You just don't see it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it takes, it takes us stepping out of our comfort zone to be able to come to terms with what makes us uncomfortable and to uh, activate ourselves towards what's productive. We have one minute left. What would you like to say to our listeners that you think is really important from your perspective, from your tradition, to those listening today? Um, we can't craft truths only in a way that is convenient or comfortable uh, to us, whether those truths are in the domain of what's spiritual or in the social. We have to be willing to pursue truth as truth. And then um, when we work within what we discover as truth, uh, we find beauty in ourselves and beauty in our actions and beauty in our pursuit of God. So uh, just keep up the pursuit of truth. Always be willing to look deeper, uh, whether that's uh, with our theology or with our politics. Yes, very good. If people want to get in touch with you, um, maybe to read a book you've written or some other way, or just to converse, what, what's the best way? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the, those social media outlets, and you can also find me at our website, yakeeninstitute.org, Y-A-Q-E-E-N, institute.org. Okay. And, folks, uh, my uh, website is pauljohnroach.com. Uh, e- email me at pauljohnroach at yahoo.com to let, let us know what your thoughts on this series. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, let me tell you about next week, and then we'll say goodbye to um, – so, Omar, next week, uh, my daughter, actually, Miriam Sharma, who grew up in unity but was also uh, highly influenced by Hinduism and other religions, um, is going to be on the show. And she's now uh, a practicing Christian Hindu. So she's going to join me to talk about that. And uh, I think that should be quite fascinating. It's our show on unity in Hinduism. So that's next, uh, next Tuesday. Right now, I want to thank the Imam for being with us. What a fascinating show. Beautiful consciousness. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And thanks for listening, folks. Be safe during this time. Be well. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.